Today's teaching text comes from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Oh, it's such a joy to get to open the scriptures with you this morning. It's been five weeks since I've preached, and I've enjoyed the break. I hope that you've enjoyed getting to meet some of my friends and hear the scriptures uh, the last four weeks. As an 18-year-old, I bought my first study Bible. You know, I went to Mardell, I went, you know, in the days when you go to stores to buy things, and I uh, bought this 10-pound NASB study Bible, and I took it with me to summer camp, New Life Ranch, where I was a worship leader for a couple of years, and I began to systematically read the Bible for uh, really the first time, to systematically try to read it all the way through. And I would wake up really early in the morning at camp, and I would hike up into the woods. Some of you know New Life Ranch, and I'd go to the outdoor chapel, and I'd sit on the stage in the cool of the morning with a cup of coffee, and I'd read from the Old Testament for about 30 minutes, and I'd read from the New Testament for about 30 minutes. And by the time I was coming down around 7 or 7.30, there were campers jumping into Flint Creek for polar dip. Why on earth they did that or we did that to campers, I have no idea. But uh, kids were jumping into the creek before breakfast, and I just remember coming down the mountain, the hill, feeling like my face was radiating with the glory of God. (laughs) I felt like Moses coming down Sinai, having been in the presence of God. And I believe then, as I believe now, like Paul said to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. And so today, as we do every week, we're coming to the Lord asking that He would help us, that He would exhale and breathe on us, and that we might inhale His very life and make us again into living beings. We're asking the Lord to teach and rebuke and correct and train us so that we can be equipped to do whatever work God has given us in whatever station of life that you're in. Now, we have in Philippians 3 here a passage that might be simultaneously encouraging and a little bit confusing. You might say, I like thee not having a righteousness of my own bit, and I'm not really sure who Paul's insulting at the first part of the Scripture. Who is he calling dogs? 
Well, to understand what, what Paul's doing in these 11 verses, which are so rich, I do want to say there were a couple of suppositions that Paul had as the original author and that the original readers would have had that enabled them to hear the Scripture aright. Uh, common assumptions or presumptions about both the nature of God and the world and then uh, the nature of themselves, human beings. The first supposition that they had was that they were created by God, that God authored existence, that this is our Father's world, that God has encoded into this world a meaning. Uh, humans were created to reflect God's image into all the world. As He rules over us, we're meant to rule over the world. That's number one. The second thing they would have both understood was that as a consequence of human rebellion, which is sin, uh, humanity and creation itself have gone wildly off course. And this rebellion introduced both natural evil, things we experience like, like, I don't know, thorns in the ground or tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis, but also moral evil. People make really destructive choices that harm other people. And it's like a million bouncy balls, you know, going off all of the walls in a racquetball court, indiscriminately taking people out left and right. That's second. And the third thing is that ever since that day when they were banished from the garden, humanity has been trying to make our way back. We sense that the world is like teeming with goodness, and yet it's also not all that it was meant to be. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, whom I quote in every single sermon, says, he says, we all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with this sense of exile. Uh, a, a scriptural author said, eternity is in the hearts of men. Tolkien reflects that humans instinctively know that we were made for something better, and yet that better thing eludes us. Now, I enumerate these uh, suppositions by Paul and his original readers because these are not things that are universally held in common by us as the 21st century reading audience. Some people would dispute our origin, that we were not created or not created by God. Or if we were, we can't know for sure, and since we can't, it's not safe to assume that there's any inherent or intrinsic purpose or meaning encoded into creation or in, in the human nature. That because we can't know if we were made and by whom, like, we can't assume that there's a common purpose or end for which humanity was made. Carl Truman, in his book uh, that just came out, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, distinguishes between those who have what he calls a mimetic worldview. You're not going to be tested on this. Uh, those who have a mimetic worldview, it's those who believe that humanity was created for a purpose or an end or a telos, and that that purpose has been revealed and that there are external truths toward which we will ultimately be held accountable. Those who see the world in this way have a mimetic worldview. And then there are also those who, he says, have a poetic worldview, a poetic worldview. And it says those who say humanity was not created for any particular purpose that we can know, that there are no external truths or laws to which we must conform. Rather, they believe we've just ended up in this world of raw materials and that we just have to figure out our own way to get through the day. We're given a bunch of raw materials and we make whatever meaning we can because there isn't anything, any intrinsic or inherent meaning that's already here on a platter for us to consume. Those who maintain this poetic worldview that there are not these external truths or realities to which we're invited to conform often have little use for the scriptures which assume revelation. 
which assume that there is a God who wants to be known through self-disclosure and has given us a sense this is the end or purpose for which humanity was created. And so those who have this poetic worldview may have little use for the scriptures in general and this passage in particular. And I should say it's worth knowing and having a conversation with someone who perhaps isn't in a relationship with Jesus, if you're talking big ideas, it's worth clarifying, if, if not verbally, just intuitively, is this person coming to this conversation from a totally different paradigm? I'm coming into this thinking there is a God who has revealed himself ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a sense for which, an end for which humanity was created. And this person is coming from a totally different perspective. They don't accept or believe in revelation like we're all just trying to get through the day. It might be helpful to think through, oh, that's why we never can end up quite on the same page. We see life in totally different ways. As Carl Truman said in his book, the Southern Baptist who believes marriage is defined by the Bible to reflect the relationship of Christ to his church is inevitably going to be in conflict with the secularist uh, who, I lost it, the secularist who thinks that marriage is a fluid social arrangement designed for the convenience and happiness of the contrasting parties and to last not longer than it's conducive to those ends. Now, don't get hung up on the particulars here overly. Rather, see a demonstration of a mimetic worldview. God has given us a sense of what this institution is meant to be and those who come from a different perspective. Well, furthermore, as an extension of many people's modern rejection of a mimetic worldview, which assumes like this divine order, they additionally reject the concept of, of sin or human rebellion and the brokenness and chaos that ensues as a result of it. And many people contend that what corrupts human beings is not any kind of original sin. It's not something that started with us, but the thing that corrupts human beings is institutions. And humanity will finally be free when we've toppled the institutions that are poisoning us against one another. In Brookside, a couple of years ago, I saw this phrase spray-painted on a wall, which is perhaps wrongly attributed to the atheist philosopher Denis Diderot, where he says, men will never be free until the last king is strangled by the entrails of the last priest. Pretty encouraging. <laughs> now, undoubtedly, uh, there are many uh, systemic problems and even evils that perpetuate inequity among us along racial lines or gender lines or other lines. And many Christians are way too reluctant to even begin to entertain this conversation, reluctant or defensive, unwilling to see that that's a possibility that might be going on. Uh, and we need, to, we need to be fair-minded in going into these kind of conversations. But the Christian acknowledges that, that all of this begins with the rebellion in the human heart of rejecting God's rule. And it's now finding expression both in personal and systemic or institutionalized evils. And we're facing the consequences of all of those. As we sang during communion last week, the world was good, the world is broken. And as Paul's going to help us explore today, uh, by what means will the world be redeemed? Okay, so hopefully you've got your Bible open in front of you. I'm going to talk about each of the scriptures a bit. In verses uh, 2 through 4, Paul is warning against a group of people who may try to convince the Philippian Christians who are Gentiles that in order to be real Christians, they need to become Jews first, uh, primarily evidenced by getting circumcised, something a lot of adult men were not super keen on doing. But Paul rejects this notion that some external merit, like circumcision, was going to make you good with God. 
And he makes this argument, and he does it elsewhere. He does it in Romans and other places. He says the real circumcision needed is a circumcision of the heart. It's a cutting out of sin. This, he's hearkening back to imagery used by the prophet Jeremiah. And he says it's those who operate in the Spirit, who put no confidence in external fleshly merits that are the true Israel or the true circumcision. And then Paul, as a Jew and rather an accomplished Jew, begins to list his own like bona fides, his own external fleshly merits. Uh, here's how Eugene Peterson in the message uh, paraphrased this. He said, you know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, brith, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. He says, look, all those people that are trying to get you to like become a Jew so that you can be, you know, quote-unquote, a real Christian, look at me. I have been everywhere. I have done everything. I have got every badge on my sleeve. Listen to me. And then he says in verse 7, the very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And he says, and why? Because of Christ. Now, Paul isn't saying, as some might read him or be inclined to think, that his attempts to obey the law, or even the law itself, the Torah, like the Old Testament, uh, itself was bad. He's not saying that. That's not why he's, you know, so to speak, throwing them away. The law was given by God. The law was a good thing. It's, it's, it's th that the law and these external merits were ineffectual in transforming him into a righteous and holy person on his own. It's not that they were bad. You can't say anything that God gives is bad. It's that they were simply ineffectual in overcoming the problem of his sin nature because of the weakness of the flesh. But Paul says he's found a way that's better, that's incomparably better. And compared to this, this better thing, he says in verse 8, his fleshly merits are skybala. Now you guys all know what skybala means, I'm sure. You should have learned what skybala means if you grew up in church as teenagers and wanted to find a bad word in the Bible. Skybala, like the secondary meaning that's translated in the NIV as garbage, has a more precise definition and it's a little bit cruder. Because Paul used this word. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And he used it to evoke a response, to provoke a response in you. The secondary meaning is garbage. The, the primary meaning is poop. But it's not just poop. It's a little bit more crass than that, okay? It, let me tell you what it might sound like. I consider them, uh, my, you know, my old external merits, a steaming pile of, you know, that's the sense in which he's saying this. It's crap. By comparison, it's excrement. By contrast, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now let's pause here for just a second. Y'all are smart people. You know that the Bible was not written in English. It didn't come originally in English. It was translated. Most of the Old Testament was in Hebrew and translated into lots of different languages, and it's ultimately come to us in English. Uh, the New Testament, primarily in Greek, and so we're reading translations, not the original autographs of the Bible. 
And I rarely jump into conversations about like the original languages of the Bible for two reasons. One is my own ineptitude in handling the original languages. And the other is that I find that pastors often appeal to the original languages just to seem a little bit smarter. And I don't want to do either one of those today. But in this passage here, we have a phrase that has been imperfectly translated. And we need to talk about it because the meaning is drastically different if we pay attention. And it's this phrase that's translated into the New Testament. Uh, it's in uh, whatever verse that is there, verse 9, as faith in Christ. You might underline that in your Bible if it says faith in Christ in NIV or NRSV or whatever it is that you're reading. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. In Greek, this phrase is pistis Christu. The word pistis, here translated faith, has a more robust and broad meaning than just this word faith. It can mean faithfulness or, or trustworthiness. Uh, and, and yeah, this debate, which I'm not going to overly parse today, has to do with the specific grammatical rules that are at work in translating this phrase, uh, whether the, the word here is a subjective or objective genitive. Basically, what it comes down to is where should we be pointing the spotlight here? Who's the principal uh, actor in this phrase, pistis Christu? Well, one way of reading the passage is, of course, as it says in verse 9 in the NIV, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That is, of course, perhaps the way you've heard it a lot of your life. But there's another way that we can read it, that more and more people are saying, I think this gets at a deeper and truer, more accurate sense of the phrase. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from a law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ. Do you see the difference? That which is through faith in Christ versus that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, which tees up this key question, whose faith or faithfulness makes us righteous? One of the chief practical problems, personally, of reading this passage as faith in Christ, as in my faith in Christ, is that my faith is just so weak. And if it's my own faith in Christ is the means by which I'm made whole, I am in trouble. And how many of you in going through a difficult season have been shamed because you didn't have enough faith? That bad thing happened because you didn't have enough faith or that good thing didn't happen because you didn't have enough faith. I know Jesus said you just need the faith of a mustard seed, but some days that feels aspirational. But isn't it interesting that in the previous verses, Paul was making the, the point that if the burden is on us to make ourselves whole, we're in a pickle. He said the trouble with the law is the law is great, but our flesh is weak and we're incapable of keeping it. And if the emphasis has just shifted from obeying enough law to having enough faith, isn't this just the same song, second verse? And in what way is it good news? Such good news that by contrast, the old ways of living was like a pile of excrement if the burden is still on me to conjure up enough faith to make myself whole. It just doesn't work. The key question remains about the, this, the point of emphasis, the real hinge here. Is the hinge of this phrase meant to be anthropocentric, human-centered, or is it Christocentric? Is it all about what Jesus has done? Is it all about me and my faith or all about him and his faithfulness? 
a very practical outworking of this tension when people feel the burden that it's all on them shows up in one's relationship toward baptism of all things. For many people, baptism is merely an outward expression of an inward decision. And, and, you know, I'm announcing my faith to all of you, and, you know, like, I want you to celebrate with me. And when that happens, truly, like, praise God. However, how many people do you know, and how many of you who have gotten baptized again and again and again and again, dunked, sprinkled, sprayed, everything, super soaker during COVID, How many people do you know have gotten baptized so many times because after that first baptism, they found themselves running back to the way that they used to live and they keep screwing up. Oh gosh, I got to jump in the water again and scrub up again. They keep running away from God and then coming back home so they get baptized again and again and again. If the thing that makes us right with God is our decision to trust God, then we may as well get re-baptized every single week. Because our trust, our faith, our ability to bank on the person of Jesus Christ waxes and wanes on the hour. And consequently, many people struggle uh, with this question of, like, am I secure? They they struggle with self-doubt, self-hatred, never feeling themselves truly loved by God because they do keep screwing up and feeling like they need to hop in the baptistry again. And so we come to church and we sing a song like, I surrender all. Like, I remember when I meant it the first time, and I'm going to try real hard to mean it this time, but, like, I just find that I can't do it. Maybe they just stop singing altogether because they, they just lose any sense of hope that we can say with integrity, all to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. It's like, well, dang, it'd be great if I could. Given Paul's prior argument about the weakness of the flesh, isn't a reading that prioritizes my faith kind of weird? And isn't it odd if you were to read on to the latter part of that phrase that if he did mean to say the righteousness that comes through my faith in Christ, that he would say the same thing almost word for word again on the basis of faith? In their book, uh, The Faithfulness of Jesus Christ, David Downs and Benjamin Lappinga argue convincingly that all throughout the letters of Paul, it makes the most sense to read when he uses this word pistis, especially pistis related to Christu, to Christ, that it's used not to refer to one's own faith, but rather to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So to read the same passage again, but moving the focus this time from us to him, hear how this lands differently. I consider my own fleshly merits garbage excrement that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We're now saying two different things that complement one another. And seen from this angle, we appreciate that there's been a big breakthrough for Paul. It's not that he has finally conjured up enough faith to be made righteous, but that the righteousness of God has been granted to him from God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And the final phrase at the end of verse 9, on the basis of faith, now makes greater sense. Not as a needless repetition, but as a way of expressing for Paul, I am putting my faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ toward me. I am putting my trust 
in the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ to be the means through which I inherit the righteousness of God. I have faith in His faithfulness and not my own. Now, some may say, if faith is required at all, has any new point been made? Absolutely. It's the shift from a drowning man trying to dream up his own life preserver to the drowning man reaching out to accept the life preserver handed to him by the rescuer. There's nothing heroic about accepting the hand that saves you. True heroism is found in the one who risked his life to save those who were perishing. This righteousness from God comes to us by way of Christ's faithfulness. But what does even that mean? What what is the faithfulness of Christ? Well, certainly it refers to Christ's faithfulness in obeying the Father's will. Do you remember him struggling in the garden? Oh, Lord, if if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. The faithfulness of Christ. We see him on the cross being mocked, suffering intensely. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the faithfulness of Christ. But it's even more than that. And scholars said, the story of Christ's faithfulness in Paul's letters, which is evoked in this phrase, pistis Christu, does not end with Jesus' death. No, it's better. Instead, Christ's pistis, his faithfulness in the Pauline epistles, refers also, and in some cases primarily, to the continuing faithfulness of the risen and exalted Christ toward those who are united to him by faith, by pistis. It's Christ's faithfulness toward humanity, the abiding, justifying, mission-empowering trustworthiness of the risen and exalted Lord for those who are united to him that allows humans to place their trust in him. In other words, right now at the right hand of the Father, he's still being faithful by contending for us and praying for us. He was faithful by offering himself on the cross, but now, risen and exalted to the right hand of the Father, he continues to show his faithfulness by advocating for us. No longer must we rely on the strength of our own will and hope that we really mean it this time when we sing, I surrender all. Now we can finally breathe and rest because what was required of us, Christ has now surrendered in his own very life. What was most needed, he surrendered on our behalf. A worship leader named Zach Hicks took this song, I Surrender All, and appreciating the dynamics and the change of focus from human-centric to Christ-centric, wrote a parody of the song that he intended as a parody. But it carries such profound meaning when you consider the contrast. He said, All, Lord Jesus, you surrendered. All to me you freely gave. All my sin you bravely shouldered, all for me my life to save. Christ surrendered all. Christ surrendered all. All for me and my salvation, Christ surrendered all. Now, I think he could have done it better by not making it first person singular. (laughs) For the world and our salvation, Zach, that would have been better. But all, Lord Jesus, you surrendered. And because Christ surrendered all, it's a new day. 
trusting in his trustworthiness, putting my faith in his faithfulness, I now have a new understanding of who I am. Who am I? I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who am I? I'm a child of God. 1 John 3.1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that's what we are. Who am I? I'm a person who's free of condemnation, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now in Christ Jesus no condemnation. You could go on and on again. Who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm made holy. I'm a, a sibling of Christ. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm beloved. I'm his child. When I sin, I don't beat myself up or shame myself. I don't have to go hop back in the baptistry to scrub up one more time. I confess my sin and I remember who I am. I'm baptized in Christ Jesus. I don't need to scrub up again. He's already done the work. Christ surrendered all. So I keep trusting in his trustworthiness, thanking him for his faithfulness and asking him for the grace to live into my baptized identity, who I really am. Apostle John said this in 1 John. He said, my children, dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin. But look, if anybody does sin, we're cool. We've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sin is serious. Christ has surrendered all. For we're empowered and liberated, no longer to live defined by our sin, but to live by how He's defined us. You're my son, you're my daughter that I love with you. I am well pleased. When my heart condemns me, I remember I've got an advocate with the Father. And he said he's good with me, so I'm okay. Now, in a very surprising twist, this grace, which is true grace, doesn't lead to license to live recklessly. It actually leads into this greater desire, hunger, to live in conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. You hear the longing in Paul's words. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be conformed to him and join him in his suffering. I want to be on the team when he comes back in glory. This, this sense of having been liberated by sin, baptized in Christ, no longer being held to the law, but now being liberated by the Spirit has given him this, this hunger and desire to press in, to know Jesus, to conform my life to his way of being free from condemnation. The gift of his faithfulness beckons us on, not toward more religious striving in order to be okay with God, but toward greater intimacy, knowing in the core of our being that we are beloved of God and liberated from sin. Now we're given a righteousness, not of our own that comes from obeying the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Maybe you are here and you've been trying to like, you've gone through the religious motion of like scrubbing up. You're here to try to like impress God enough to like you again. And you've overlooked that he already likes you and he loves you. He's saying like, hear what I've already said over you. You're my son, you're my daughter that I love. Accept that identity and live from that identity. Maybe you've never trusted like Jesus, like you've never entrusted your life to him. You've never put your faith in his faithfulness for you. Maybe you carry around a weight or a burden of sin. I just say he wants to liberate you and free you. 
And I don't care if you raise your hand or you walk down the aisle or you do it in your car or wherever or whenever it happens. Just invite and encourage you to talk to him and put your faith in his faithfulness. Put your trust in his trustworthiness. Accept that what he says about you, that's who you are, and live from that redeemed identity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, particularly in our city, we are like PhD-level experts in religious striving. And because of the gap that exists in this age, Lord Jesus, between you and us, the felt gap that exists, we just try so hard and go through so many different energy cycles to feel close to you or to feel like we're doing okay in our faith. And I pray, Lord Jesus, in a way that it represents a true shift for many of us. We would change our focus from trusting in our own trustworthiness or putting our faith in our own ability to create faith and instead put our faith in you who are faithful. Put our trust in you who are trustworthy. And my deep desire, Lord Jesus, is this would not lead to this kind of ungrateful license to now do whatever we want, but it would lead to this, this hunger that invites us to lay everything down in response. Remember Paul's words in Romans 12, brothers and sisters, in view of his mercy, in view of his faithfulness toward, toward us, we offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. So maybe today, in, in, for the first time or the hundredth time, You'd say in response to his faithfulness toward you, Lord Jesus, not in order to gain your favor, but because I already know I have it, I lay my life down. And I pray that you'd come and do a new work in me. Some of you may say, I don't really understand some of the complex words he's saying, but I just get that I want to trust in Jesus more. Tell him that. Don't just talk to someone else or me or think your thoughts. Talk to Jesus about it. Thank you, Lord. Even now as we come to the table, be present. Be present, O Christ, the breaking of the bread. May we know your presence. May we ingest the proof of your love for us. And may in being loved this way, we live differently. Amen.